Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, I'm your host, Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So, Islanders, last week we went over the Jennifer Pan case, and if you haven't listened to that one yet, then maybe pause and go back before you listen to this second and final part. Now, we left off with 24-year-old Jennifer being interviewed for the second time on the 10th of November 2010, Now, that was just two days after the home invasion that killed her 53-year-old mother, Bick, and seriously wounded her 57-year-old father, Han. Now, Jennifer's brother, Felix, he was away at school at the time, and Jennifer, of course, she escaped unharmed. Now, Han was still in a coma, and sadly, on the 10th of November, Bick Han's father died at the ripe old age of 102. Now, although he was having health problems... You can't help to think that the murder of his daughter hastened his passing. Now, we heard how Tiger Parenting had restricted what Jennifer could and couldn't do, who she could hang out with, and and that she couldn't have a boyfriend. Well, at least one that she wanted, Daniel Wong. Although she got around these restrictions by lying to her parents about school, university, jobs, and where she boarded. So tonight... Again, I'll reference the Edmonton Journal, the National Post, York Original Police Interview Tapes, the Vancouver Sun, and the book, A Daughter's Deadly Deception by Jeremy Grimaldi. Now, he was one of the crime reporters on the the spot at the time. So that's a great book. I suggest you have a look. Now, okay, a few people have reached out to say... They were going to watch the video interviews of Jennifer Pan, and I strongly suggest you do, although they are about nine hours in total, but fascinating to watch, especially if you already know the the back story to it all. So Jennifer hasn't gone back to her home at this stage, 238 Helen Avenue, Markham, Unionville, Ontario, 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 and is staying with her auntie. She's called in for her third interview, on Monday the 22nd of November 2010 at 5 District Station Markham. Now the interview commences at 2.41pm. Conducting the interview is Detective Bill Gates. And that's G-O-E-T-Z, not the Bill Gates of Microsoft fame and vaccinations. And he describes himself as being the guy that looks over all the investigations and tries to find out where things don't quite add up where maybe statements from witnesses conflict or it looks like someone hasn't told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So her first interview was in the early morning of the 9th of November, just hours after the home invasion, and the second interview was held on the 10th of November. That's just the next day. That first interview was, as I said, just hours after the home invasion, and the whole tone of it was... Police wanted as much information as possible from a surviving witness so they could start looking for the perpetrators. Now, they had to tread lightly as Jennifer had just gone through a traumatic event, but still, they needed information from her. 
Now, the second interview, just the day after, had a totally different tone. At this stage, investigators apparently in the office were split on whether or not she was the victim or the perpetrator or a victim. Now, it's early days, but things just didn't add up with her story. Now, by the time we get to this third interview, Bill Gates almost... Now, this is almost two weeks after that home invasion. Han Pan, Jennifer's father, he's now out of a coma and he's already given his version of events. Now, right from the start of this interview, Jennifer is crying with her head in her hands. Now, goat, <laughs> goats. Okay. Every time I read this, I read it as goats, but it's Gates, okay? Sorry, Mr. Gates. Gates asked her what her understanding was of the previous sworn video statement agreement in that she swore not to lie. Now, straight off, Gates tells her that if she had anything to do with the homicide, she could be charged with murder. Now, he tells her that she doesn't have to talk and she can get a lawyer, but again, no lawyer and she talks. Also, she's not under arrest and can stop the interview and walk out at any time. Now, Gates starts by asking to describe herself and her background history and what she wants to do in the future. Now, I reckon this is just to get some sort of rapport with Jennifer as they had only just met. There was different investigators interrogating or interviewing her previously and also to get some sort of baseline in regards to her body language and how she speaks to him on matters that she has absolutely no reason to lie about. So get that baseline when she's telling the truth. He brings up Daniel and their relationship. Now, at this stage, he seems to be building up how restricted Jennifer was by her parents. Maybe to try to infer that she had hostile feelings towards her parents, which in turn could be motivation for her to harm them. Also, he brings up whether she told her parents the truth about the relationship. Now, Jennifer tells Gates that she did have to lie to her parents about Daniel and that this had gone on for years. Then it's discovered that Jennifer has a third SIM card. Now, as we found last episode, she started off with one phone, then that turned into one phone and a second SIM card, which then turned into two phones and two SIM cards. Now, there's three phones. And not only three phones, there's three SIM cards. Now, this doesn't look good when you hold back this sort of information from investigators. It looks dodgy as fuck. And that maybe, maybe you're just trying to hide something and they're going to go looking. So Jennifer is then asked about the last time she talked to her dad and she tells Gates that it was at the hospital. Now, she tells Gates that her father asked if Daniel was behind the invasion. And Jennifer said she didn't think so, but couldn't be 100% sure. I mean, what the fuck does that mean? It looks like her lies are now starting to come come around and maybe bite her on the ass, you know. Anyway, Gates starts asking her about her friends. I mean, at the start, not her scummy drug-dealing friends, but the friends her parents were okay with. And she's very confident when she talks about these guys. Now, asked if she has any black friends. Now, she says no. So at this stage, 
They're trying to see if she's lying because they already know a lot more than she's letting on from cross-referencing not only her phone records, but those of her friends, especially the scummy ones. Now, Gates brings up that one of her relatives had told police that Jennifer had said that the intruders hadn't killed her because they liked her. Now, Jennifer tries to clarify this by saying, no, that's not what I said. They didn't kill her because she cooperated, not that they liked her. Now, this is where some things didn't add up. Gates then asks, why didn't they shoot you? Did your parents cooperate? Now, he, he tells her that they seemed to cooperate. They gave them their money. They did what they, what they were told. To him, they seemed like they did cooperate. Now, Jennifer starts to get very, very nervous as Gates tells her he's just trying to see where they didn't cooperate. So, hey, if you cooperated and they let you go, looks like your parents did the same thing. So, they shot them, why didn't they shoot you, or why didn't they leave you all alive? Now, at this stage, Jennifer has her head in her hands. Gates asks, why tie you up, Jennifer, and not your parents? It seems just so odd to him. It's a, that's a natural question to ask. He says, does it make sense to leave a witness behind after a killing? So he, he then goes over her statements from her previous interviews. At this stage, Jennifer, head in hands, is bent right over now, right with her head in her hands, in her knees. Now, I think at this stage, her little mind is probably racing at about 100 miles an hour or 160 kilometres an hour for those people who use metric. Now, she knows she's fucked. And there are all these holes that are starting to appear in her story. So she's freaking out. Now, Gates asks about the night of the invasion, then asks if the doors were checked as locked. Now, Jennifer says that her mum usually does it and that by that time of the night when these guys came in, they should have been locked. Now, he then goes over how she was tied up and and the description she gave of these home invaders. Now, Jennifer is looking away, head in hands again. She's crying and her answers, she's just whimpering anything that comes out of her mouth. It's it's just whimpers. Now, Gates leaves the interview for a while and Jennifer seems to know she's fucked. Her head, she's just there by herself. She's got her head in her hands again, down to her knees, and she's just crying. Now, when he comes back, he asks her, where she got the money from, especially where she got the 2000 she had in her drawer. So, okay, now, so, it turns out that her mum was doing a job on the side. She was unemployed at the time, but she it looks like she had some sort of, not so much a cash job, but she gets her pay made out to Jennifer. Now, I don't know, some sort of dodgy tax avoidance scheme or maybe to try to get some sort of social benefit, but she wouldn't get it if she was getting paid. So Bix's wages are made out to Jennifer. Now, <laughs> everything seems to be dodgy with this lot. So some of the money was Bix's wages that Jennifer had withdrawn from her account to give to her mum, but she hadn't given it to her at that point of time. Or maybe, what I reckon, 
she withdrew it knowing she needed it that night to help pay off these hitmen. So maybe her mum says, hey, I need some money today, another day. Maybe she doesn't always take the whole amount out. But Jennifer had made sure she had a good wedge of dough in that drawer to give this guy. Anyway, Gates then tells her he is a truth verification officer, not so much a detective on this case. I mean, he's a cop, but his role is to look at everything as a whole and find out where he reckons people aren't telling the truth. Now, he tells Jennifer that withholding information is also not telling the truth. He tells her as he pieces everything together, he works out what is and isn't plausible. He tells her he's undergone statement analysis on every witness statement and that he wrote out every statement and analysed it. Now, he then goes on to say he's got this app he uses. It's called Event Probability Analysis Program, where he chucks all these statements in and the computer tells him where everyone's lying. Now, this is where Gates starts to make some shit up to try and get a confession. And this is permitted by law in Canada. It's called the Reed Technique. I might have to go into a couple of cases where this hasn't quite worked out so well. It did work out quite well in Australia on the Daniel Morecambe case. But you can go back in my cases there where I discussed that. So it's basically making up some bullshit to try and get a confession out of the subject. Now, Gates tells Jennifer that things just don't add up. He tells her that by taking DNA samples from the house, he knows who was where and if they were or weren't in a room. Now, of course, we do know there is some truth to that. But what he was saying, that even walking into a room for a few seconds, that they can tell you've been in there just by DNA analysis. Now, yes, maybe they can. Maybe one or two of your cells might fall off into the carpet. But what he's trying to say is, as soon as you go anywhere or do anything, there's DNA there, and we're going to pick that little tiny, minuscule piece up, and we're going to know you're in there. He tells Jennifer that they talk to a lot of people to help verify her story. Now, that is true. By this stage, nearly two weeks after the event, they've spoken to a lot of people just to help verify everyone's story. But then, get this, he goes into satellites. He tells her that they obtained satellite video of the scene on the night and they were able to use infrared to x-ray, so to speak, into her house that night and watch as the events unfolded. And and Jennifer believes him. So he's actually saying, yep, we went back on the satellite footage, like, I don't know, some sort of Star Trek, I don't know, some in-the-future type of law enforcement. And they were able to actually watch people walking from room to room. So if she's telling bullshit, they will know because they've been watching it from some satellite. Now, he also asked her, Who was the last to touch the doorknob, the front doorknob? Because if her mother had locked it, her fingerprints would be there. But if someone later unlocked it, their fingerprints would be there, replacing her mum's or maybe smudging her mum's. Now, that's true. That's pretty true. If Jennifer was the one, last person to actually touch that, her fingerprints would be on there. 
Now, Gates then mentions Crime Stoppers and how they get lots of calls from there. He says that the more people involved in some sort of crime, the more info they get because each one of these people will talk to someone else, their boyfriend, girlfriend, neighbour, friend, whatever. People can't help to talk. And then the person they've talked to, they're going to talk to other people and so on and so on. He says often tips are called in by friends of the perpetrators for the reward money. He says even family members will dob people in. And sometimes it's not just for the reward money. Sometimes there's been such a shitty, awful crime that even a family member will say, get them off the street. So Gates tells her that he has so many resources available for him to check her story. He has all the forensic evidence. He has criminal profiles. He has so many ways to verify her story if it's true or not. So he's really just trying to say, come clean. He keeps saying, I already know what happened. You just have to tell me the truth. Now, he does the good cop thing saying that nothing surprises him. Everyone makes a mistake, Jennifer. Everyone makes mistakes, but it's best to get it off your chest. You're not a bad person. You just made a mistake. Now, he tells her that she hasn't been truthful. and mentions that her dad was there and that he told the truth and her story isn't truthful. Now, Gates tells her that what she said happened, that many of those events just didn't happen, that her dad's story doesn't match what what her, that her story doesn't match what her dad said, sorry. He goes on that she spent the last seven years not telling the truth. She's been abused by her parents in the way they were so strict with her. He tells her that she is involved, no doubt about it, and that he knows why it happened and that she was treated like a kid rather than a 24-year-old woman. Now, she is just resisting any of this She wants to stick to her story, and that's the end of it. Now, he tells her that she falsified the descriptions of the invaders, but it's still never too late to do the right thing to stop living the lie. Now, Jennifer, through most of this, she just has her, like I said before, her head in her hands. She doesn't say a word. Then all of a sudden, she says that she wanted it to stop. Now, Gates tells her that, they didn't show up for money, did they? They showed up to kill the parents. They just And also, they just didn't randomly show up out of nowhere. So at this stage, and I sort of cut this right back, three hours and ten minutes into the interview, with Jennifer just hardly saying a word, just crying, head in the hands most of the time, just refusing to come clean, she whimpers, it was supposed to be me. I mean, fuck's sake, Jennifer. Her little brain going 100 miles an hour. How am I going to get out of this? How am I going to get out of this? Oh, I'll make it up that it was supposed to be me, not the parents. Now, she finally admits that she knew these guys were coming, but she told the three men to come and kill her, that it wasn't supposed to happen the way that it did. Now, it comes out that she had organized for a home invasion and that she would pay them two thousand dollars for them to kill her now that's her story that's that's not the truthful story 
But that's why she had that $2,000 there. They were supposed to come, invade the house, and kill her. Now, she says this had first been discussed a couple of months before by a person that Jennifer called a friend of her friend, Andrew Montemare, called Rick or Ricardo Duncan, who then asked if he knew anyone who could do a job. Now, Rick gave her a number to call. This is Jennifer's story, okay? She said then she used her iPhone to do it. And they get then they get to the night of the home murder. How, Jennifer, how did you set this up? Now, she said that she got a text that read, game on, and that it was maybe one or two hours before the event. Now, Gates then tells her again, you're just telling me half-truths. Now, she keeps saying, look, this is true. She got the guy to come to kill her, not her parents. Now, Gates mentions to her how they could have done it anywhere, just not at her house. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Why get these guys to do this whole home invasion when they're supposed to just kill her and they end up killing the parents. Now, they she could have just gone down the road, whatever, walking in the park, whatever, and capped her ass. There was no reason for them to actually come into the house and kill her there. Now, she then says, or well, she then admits how she did unlock the door for them. She said that she got a text saying VIP access. Now, at the time, she wasn't sure what that meant, so she called them and then said, hey, we're just asking if we're ready to get in. So she told them to go to the front door as it is unlocked. Actually, what happens there is when it's unlocked, she turns her light on for a few seconds. It's not a minute as reported somewhere, and then it's turned off again. Whether or not they saw that, because they were out, weren't outside at the time or not. So there's a couple of different versions here. Anyway, she's telling them it's unlocked, it's ready to go. Now, Gates tells her that her dad gave a description that one of the guys was white and that no one had dreadlocks. Now, this is totally different to the three guys that Jennifer had described. He also asked her why she hid her cell phone. Why do that? if she was the target. So it's remember she hid it in the back of her pocket and when all this had gone on, the guys had left, she got it and out and called 911. Why hide the cell phone if you've got someone pointing a gun at you? What's the point of that? So all these little details of her story aren't adding up at all. She keeps saying it was supposed to be her. It was supposed to be her. So she's just head and hands going, oh, it was supposed to be me. It was supposed to be me. Now, Gates tells her that this kind of thing, where kids kill their parents, happens to about 300 families a year. Now, I don't know exactly how many families, but he was saying it does happen a lot. So she's no different to any other family that this has happened to. He tells her that people, family, friends, and the police... They just wanted to come clean and feel sorry for what she did. Stop denying what's going on because it's pretty clear to everyone that she was involved and they just wanted to sort of feel some remorse. Then there's a knock at the door and Gates goes outside. Now, when he comes back, 
So they've they've gone over quite a few things from the previous interviews here. I know again, I know I've cut this right down. When he comes back, he tells her he's arresting her for murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Now that was four hours and eleven minutes into this interview. I think the people who were watching the interview, they could see that she's just not going to come out and just say, I I pulled a hit on my parents. She was going to stick with her new version. It was supposed to be her. They mucked it up. She tried to call it off. All this bullshit. They must have just thought, let's kill it here. We've got enough evidence to go forward here. So, He's told her he's arresting her for murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. He tells her to get a lawyer. Now, Jennifer says to Gates, I thought you were on my side. So, what, what did she think, this guy? is going to get her out of a murder charge, that he was being friendly, and, you know, that's just the way he, he was being good cop, bad cop at times. But he was just trying to be some sort of fatherly figure almost to her and she goes oh, I thought you were on my side oh, now you're charging me with murder now she clearly looks like she does not want to be there and she just can't make this decision on getting a lawyer like no this isn't happening to me I should be going home I shouldn't be getting a lawyer now she empties out of pockets and Gates checks her coats she, he puts a couple of pads on the table along with her cell phone and $201.07. He leaves and she just sits there motionless with her head down. Okay, so there's this Andrew and Rick guy she said she spoke to about the inv- invasion. Well, they weren't really involved at all. Now, it would be found that Jennifer did pay this couple of dudes previously to kill her father in a parking lot, but it looks like they just took her money and nothing came of it. Now, what would be found, and this is through phone records and other investigations, is that Daniel Wong actually set up Jennifer with a couple of dudes he knew to do the hit on on her parents. That's why she was trying to implicate these other guys before the Andrew and Rick guy to try and keep the love of her life, loser Daniel Wong, out of <laughs> out of any trouble. Okay, so Daniel then gave Jennifer a SIM card and this iPhone after they worked out that they're going to put the hit on the parents to call a guy named Lenford Crawford, or homeboy as he was known. Now Crawford then contacts his mate, Eric Carty, whose nickname was Sniper, Carty then called his mate. Now, I'll try and get his name in the first stuff. David Mulvaginam. So, <laughs> David Mulvaginam. Mulvag- Mulvaginam. Sorry. So, Daniel and these three guys would ultimately be held responsible for this home invasion. Of course, Jennifer was the one who initiated it all and ordered the hit. But this is where it all gets just a little bit weird if it's not weird already. Now, it would take investigators several months until they were ready to make arrests. In fact, from the 22nd of November when they charged Jennifer, it wouldn't be until mid-April 2011 until Daniel Wong, Lenford Crawford, Eric Carty and David Malvaginam would be arrested. Now, Crawford, Carty and Milo 
They're all black guys. But Handpan, he told police that one of the perpetrators was white. Also, Han would tell police that when he was at gunpoint, Jennifer was taken downstairs, but rather than, as she said, she was tied up with her hands behind her back and scared, she didn't have her hands bound behind her back and seemed to be quite comfortable with one of the home invaders. Now, he's not stupid. He realised that at that moment that she was behind this home invasion and what he must have thought as he was marched down into the basement with his wife, had a blanket thrown over their heads and then he heard the first gunshot. Now, he survived only because he turned his head and copped the shot in his face rather than the back of the head. Now, also, he's lucky as the bullet entered his face and travelled down, shattering his neck bone and lodging itself in his neck, missing a vital artery. Anyway, this sort of explains why he ended up running out of the house, screaming, rather than checking on Jennifer's welfare. He knew she was behind it all, and when he finally came out of his coma, he was able to tell police his version of events. Now, his story didn't match up to Jennifer's much at all. And to think... She went to his bedside when he woke up and Han asked her if Daniel, her loser boyfriend, may have been involved. So he was suspicious but probably hoped that Daniel had pressured her into the whole saga. And I wonder what he thought when <laughs> he's sick in bed, he's just had his head blown, up, blown away, half of it, his wife's dead. He thinks his daughter and the boyfriend are behind it. And then Jennifer asks him if he's got over a thousand bucks on him. I mean, for fuck's sake. What what would you be thinking? God. Anyway, it wouldn't be until March 2014 that the trial of Pan, Wong, Cardi and Myla Vaginum and Crawford would commence and it would last for about 10 months, this court case. They all pled not guilty in the charges I mentioned before first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Now, the prosecution relied on thousands of text messages between the culprits, and especially they zoomed in on a 100 or so messages between Jennifer and Daniel Wong in the six hours before the murder. Now, that one text message, VIP access that I mentioned before, now that happened at the same time security cameras across the road from Jennifer's house picked up her bedroom light being switched on and then off. They also showed that the home invasion had so many unusual aspects to it. I mean, Jennifer wasn't blindfolded, let alone killed. She was left as a witness to the whole event. Now, her father, who who was supposed to be killed at the time, he survives, tells police a whole different story to that that Jennifer told them. Now, also, the perpetrators looked different. Now, one that Han said, one was actually white and not black. And also, he says she wasn't tied up at all during the attack and seemed to get along quite well with these home invaders. Now, one strange aspect was that investigators were only able to name this Myle Vaganen as one of the home invaders. The other two, they seemed they couldn't name. Now, Cardi was apparently the getaway driver and Crawford and Wong were at their work at the time. Now, whether Cardi or not was in the house, 
it's it's unknown. And this white guy, who is it? I have no real idea. Look, I, I have researched this quite quite extensively, but he seems to have just disappeared off the map. Maybe it was one of Daniel Wong's mates for sure, or maybe it was bloody Daniel Wong, although he was apparently at work. Now, Pan, Jennifer Pan, Daniel Wong, Malvad Jenham and Crawford, they were all convicted on December the 13th, 2014, and each received a life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. Cardi, he was convicted a little bit later, just because there was a problem with his lawyer getting sick, and he also got 25 years. Cardi died in prison April 2018. So, Islanders, what a strange and tragic case. Tiger parents that have only have the best intentions, they seem to have turned this talented daughter into a killer. Now, maybe it's a bit strong to say that, but they did expect Jennifer Jennifer to be the best, to excel in her schooling and other activities in her life. When Jennifer couldn't keep up with her parents' expectations, she began to lie, forging school reports, which then then escalated into lying about graduating high school and then the flow-on from that, lying about attending uni. I mean, Jennifer just shacked up with her forbidden boyfriend, Daniel Wong, Again, lying, saying that she was actually staying with her female friend, Topaz. But as these lies snowballed, they also started to fall apart bit by bit. Her parents became suspicious. Jennifer would get busted. She would then give them some half-truths as to what she was actually doing and then go back to lying again. And as she got older, her parents still had this immense hold on her. The more she broke the rules, the more they locked her down or tried to. The only way out for Jennifer, the only way to be with her love, Daniel, was to do away with the parents. Now, they did have an insurance policy, and of course, they've got other assets. I don't know if they own their house outright, if they bought their cars outright, but these sort of people tend to not lend money, so I'm pretty sure they worked very hard to buy what they had. Now, she approached her drug-dealing boyfriend, Daniel, to organise some sort of hitman to raid her house and kill her parents. She would collect the insurance, sell the house, split it with her brother and live happily ever after with loser Daniel. Now, problem is, the first thing... Now, this is the first thing, Jennifer. You hired amateurs. You hired street thug scum. I mean, sure... They'll pop a cap in the ass of anyone for $10,000, even $10,000 Canadian dollars. I mean, it's not like real dollars. It's Canadian dollars they would do this for. But as we see here, it wasn't planned professionally at all. When Hampan woke up from his coma, he was able to give his version of events and they contrasted in so many different ways to the version Jennifer gave police. But even before he woke up, investigators who do this shit every day, don't forget Jennifer, they saw that the home invasion just didn't add up. They soon thought Jennifer was the mastermind behind it. Her phone records would help establish the links between Jennifer, Daniel and these other morons. Now, Jennifer didn't even get her story straight with Daniel before he was interviewed. He was telling police that she did want her parents dead. I mean, they're... 
she was trying to say, no, I'd never want that. He just goes in there, well, yeah, she sort of did mention it at some stage. There you go. Now, Jennifer also thought that throwing out a SIM card would mean her messages couldn't be found. Now, this is the one SIM card 3 in iPhone. But they were still on this iPhone that she'd been given to organise this hit. And police would eventually find this iPhone and able to get the messages off it. Now, this reminds me of Jodie Arias sticking the camera she'd been taking sex photos off on the, on the afternoon that she killed her ex-boyfriend, Travis Alexander. She puts the camera into the washing machine, puts it on a wash cycle. Hopefully, this will erase the memory. Now, it didn't, and that fucked her up because there was photos on there proving she was there at the time Travis was killed. Anyway, Jennifer, I think, Jennifer, you're just an evil little scumbag. You could have just left home. Now, the parents showed what can happen if you are hard on your kids. You can send them a bit crazy. Still, Bick and Han came from a very different background. They just wanted Jennifer to have what they didn't have. So I'm not blaming these victims at all. It's just that their actions brought out the evil in their daughter. So, Islanders, that is another case gone. And as I said last week, if you want more info, read the book A Daughter's Deadly Deception by Jeremy Grimaldi. And also, don't forget to have a look at this Jennifer's Interviews tapes on YouTube. I mean, I can only get so much in two of these episodes. These books will go into all the little details that I have to sort of skip over. So, that's another one. And here at the end of the show, I need to work out some better segue into this as I end. Usually, it's really sort of gruesome case and, you know, everything's really horrible. How do you get into the Patreon stuff at the end? Anyway, Patreon, thanks to all my past, present and new patrons. Your financial support does make a difference. True Crime Island is commercial free for all. So no annoying ads for undies, food, delivery shit or whatever. And my content, all of it is available for everyone, no matter if you can donate or not. Thank you all so much. It's very appreciated. If you want to help the island out, you just go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Now, if you don't like this monthly thing, you can also donate to PayPal. PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com or paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Don't forget, everyone, support yourself before you support the island or buy me a beer or whatever. I know times are really tough at the moment. Let's hope we can all get through. Now, of course, I've got my merch at Threadless and Redbubble now. I've updated the website, truecrimeisland.com. There is a contact and merch link for Threadless Redbubble and also for the Bonfire promo link. Now, if you have any problems with any of the merch at any time, don't forget to email them. And also let me know as well so I know what's going on. All these companies are quite happy to replace stuff, fix it, whatever. But we need to know if you've got a problem. Now, I'll be running a promo for a limited edition hot pink logo shirt. So instead of the aqua blue, it's hot pink. This will run for three weeks until the 28th of July. You can order within that time frame, after which they will be produced and shipped. Thanks for all those that have already ordered one. I think there's about 10 or so at the moment. In fact, 
I did order one for myself as well. I think Kate's getting one and some for, for her friends as well. There's a few styles, long and short sleeve and several colours. I've got the black short, set short black. Now, there's also links on my Facebook on Facebook and Twitter. If you find it hard to get the link, just drop me an email and I'll send it through you through to you, cambo at truecrimeisland.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing, also by sharing it with your friends and families. That's a free way of doing it. Please feel free to check out my new YouTube channel. I've also got a BitChute channel, so uh, subscribe there. I think we're up to 909 subscribers at 1,000 subs going to give away a t-shirt so a little bit more motivation to have a look and thanks to all of those who have subbed and all the people who have subbed could you please watch some of the videos as well that'd be nice please feel free to comment subscribe and get notifications hit the little bell i've also added a link for this on my website if you want to contact me the best way always the best way is cambo at truecrimeisland.com all the other ways are quite difficult for me to go back over and search through if required now, we do have a promo this week. We haven't had one for a while. Morning the Murdered podcast. This true crime podcast's aim is to give a voice to homicide victims' loved ones. Morning the, Murder was, Morning the Murdered was created in remembrance of victims everywhere. You'll never be forgotten. Okay, so that's at the end of the show. And that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't. Get to delete your browser history. Good night, Bumfakalanga. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members. And I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast.